Hey, 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 welcome. Pull on your wool socks and gather close around the fire. New Belgian Brewing Company toasts to the season with their Belgian-inspired glassware, full of Tubelo winter ale, a tasty winter warmer with a hoppy palate. While the weather outside may be frightful, the beer inside is delightful. New Belgium encourages you to follow your folly to newbelgium.com, where hoppy sing-alongs, giveable glassware, and cheer can be found. With additional support from Kuat Racks and Patagonia. This is The Shorts, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. I live alone with the Cumberland trees. In July of 2008, fresh out of university, I packed two bags and drove west from Canada's east coast. I left the car I was driving with a friend in the Canadian Rockies, then made my way to Squamish, and from there, gradually down the coast, climbing and traveling with dirtbags. For the first time in my life, I was traveling with no set plans. My goals were to climb a bit harder and do some longer hikes. Through the process, I hoped to learn about myself. I thought I'd get this out of the mountains, but as it turned out, some things I learned on the highway. Moving along on a Cumberland breeze. I fight along with my coffee and dreams. Near the end of my trip on October 30th, I left the Grand Canyon after a week of backpacking in Arizona. My plan was to hitchhike along the interstate into California, getting off at Needles and taking back roads for 180 miles through the Mojave Desert. In Joshua Tree National Park, I would meet up with my older brother Peter and his girlfriend Laurel to climb for one final weekend before I flew back east. My route looked good on the map, and a young warden of the Grand Canyon gave me the thumbs up. I figured I'd be in Joshua Tree by nightfall. It's not too late to shoot a shotgun. Leaving the Grand Canyon, I got my first ride within minutes. But hitchhiking west on the interstate, that proved difficult. A state trooper reprimanded me and forced me to walk miles to the next exit. And when I finally caught a ride with a long-haul trucker, he tried tirelessly to convert me to Christianity before mistakenly letting me off the wrong exit well after dark. That night, I slept in a drainage ditch. In the morning, I woke up and dragged myself to the highway. It turned out my hitchhiking luck hadn't improved overnight, so I walked the remaining four miles to Needles. At the edge of Needles, a strip mall and a small gas station sat quietly in the flat desert. It felt like a ghost town. I went into the gas station and asked the young guy at the counter about the road going south. He just stared at me, and then he cocked his head as if he hadn't heard me correctly. Finally, he said, that road doesn't get much traffic. I don't even think there's a single house on that road. It's just desert all the way to Palm Springs. I was stunned. This is Southern California, one of the most populated areas of North America. And there's a road that's empty for a 100 miles? What was I getting myself into? I felt short of breath and tears welled up. So I stepped quickly outside and swore into the wind. I was lonely, homesick, and getting really tired of trying to do things the hard way. I'd have been happy to buy a bus ticket. 
except in this town, I didn't have that option. Feeling defeated, I went to the payphone in the parking lot and called my older brother Peter at his office in Orange County. I told him my situation and that I probably wouldn't be getting to Joshua Tree for another day or so. I felt bad that I'd be missing our last chance to climb together for a long time. Peter did his best to cheer me up, but I could hear the worry in his voice. When I set down the receiver, I knew I had to do something. I wandered around the gas station, and in the back I found some truckers replacing a flat tire. This one trucker with a large black mustache told me he sometimes drove the road, and if I was lucky, I might find another trucker going that way. So with no other options, I told myself to quit stalling and to give it a try. stood on the sandy shoulder, faking a smile, holding my cardboard sign as cars sped by. Before long, an RV with the familiar green license plate of Saskatchewan went by. If only they knew my mum had grown up in Saskatchewan, these people would have picked me up for sure. A few minutes later, a large white van with British Columbia plates rumbled by, and again I thought, if only they knew that I had once lived in Victoria, B.C. Seeing these Canadian plates was tormenting me. But it was also telling me something. Then it hit me. I'm not just another scrubby backpacker on the side of the road. I'm a Canadian on the side of the road. So I flip over my last piece of cardboard and quickly write the word Canadian. Immediately, it was like holding a billboard. Right away, passing drivers started rubbernecking. The sign was shaking people out of their trance. Amid a long stream of cars, I see it lumbering towards me. Giant RV. The maple leaf proudly stickered on the front bumper. I start waving my new sign. I'm shocked when the RV begins to slow. As it pulls onto the shoulder, I run to the door laughing out loud. Before I know what I'm doing, I'm blurting out the name of my hometown in Canada. This just confuses the driver. But then luckily his wife leans over the railing, realizing what I'm talking about, and welcomes me aboard. Janine and Gary were a retired couple from Alberta on their yearly escape from the cold Canadian winter. On the surface, we looked really different. They had graying hair, were driving an air-conditioned house. I had hiking boots, an old t-shirt, and a pack full of camping gear. As I rode in the RV, our conversation drifted back to Canada. We talked politics and snowstorms, CBC Public Radio, and hikes we'd done in the Rockies. I couldn't believe it when they told me that I was the first hitchhiker they'd ever picked up in their lives. The sign had cut through their guard. I was another Canadian like themselves, traveling in the desert. It was this simple connection that had made them stop for me. Finally, after two hours, they dropped me off in Palm Springs. I caught a couple more short rides, and by mid-afternoon, I was walking to the Hidden Valley campground in Joshua Tree. I wandered about in a state of euphoria. I felt like I was back home among climbers. People began drifting back from the crags. Weekenders started to roll in. Sunset. 
Before long, bonfires flickered among the boulders. It was Halloween night, so there were parties happening all around the campground. Hand drums and laughter echoed off the rocks, and climbers in elaborate Halloween costumes drifted in and out of the circles of light. When Peter and Laurel finally arrived, I was waiting for them near the entrance to the campground. I gave them each a big hug, and we laughed as I told them about my day. After midnight, as we stood around a bonfire, we heard someone yell out, We're going to the chasm of doom! This was followed by cheering, and immediately we found ourselves in a mob of climbers heading to the hidden valley. The chasm is something of a party trick, a long snaking chamber that weaves improbably through the innards of several cliffs. The entrance of the cave, our impromptu guide stood on a boulder and laid down the rules. Follow the person in front of you, don't lose the person behind you, and no headlamps. With a bottle of whiskey in his hand, he reminded us that most importantly, we're all going in together, and we'd all be coming out together. I hesitated, worrying that I'd get lost and left behind in this underground maze. I was tired, and I didn't like cramped spaces. But then I remembered Janine and Gary, a clean-cut couple that took a risk and pulled over to pick me up just because of my Canadian sign. With only the tiniest of connections, they had chosen to trust me and let me into their RV. I looked around at the crowd of climbers waiting to enter the cave. Neither Peter, Laurel, or I knew any of them, but I couldn't say that they were strangers. There was a connection there, and I knew I could trust them. So I turned off my headlamp and stepped into the chasm of doom. It's these connections we make. It could be through climbing, or just something you write on a cardboard sign that allow us to see the humanity we share with others. And ultimately, this pulls our communities together. My name is Graham Waugh, and this is my short. I saw your picture hanging on the back of my door. Graham lives and adventures in Corn Hill, New Brunswick. He's got all sorts of cool winter backcountry adventures planned this year. The shorts are listener-driven, so keep the submissions coming. You all have been great about it. We really appreciate it. You can email us at dirtbagdiaries at earthlink.net. Music today by Crystal Castles, Invisible Allies, and The Snakes. You can find information about the songs on our site, dirtbagdiaries.com. Walker's t-shirts have been selling like hotcakes. So far, people have been digging the three types of fun t-shirt. All the profits go right to Walker, who has been the force behind most of the show's artwork. Please consider this a way to support independent media and look cool at the same time. You can find links to the store on the right-hand side of our site. New Belgium Brewing makes the shorts possible. If you aren't already, join them on Facebook, where you can learn about what they are up to. And they're up to a lot of cool things. Say, for instance, tonight, adventure photographer Peter McBride is speaking at Fort Collins Brewery about his project documenting the beauty destruction of the Colorado River. That's pretty cool. Tomorrow, it could be something entirely new, though. New Belgium is more than beer. It's a community. Check them out on Facebook. 
Support comes from Kuat Racks, makers of innovative burly bike racks. Treat your bike right. Visit them online at kuatracks.com. Additional support comes from Patagonia. I'm Fitzcahal, and that was Graham Waugh, and you've been listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. I'm not in-